You're listening to Enchanted, a podcast on the history of magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. I'm Corinne Wieben. This episode of Enchanted is sponsored by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing sponsorship opportunities such as host-read ads, like this one, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. We've recently begun looking for sponsorship opportunities through podcorn.com, and it really couldn't be easier to find, contact, and work with potential sponsors. There's a huge variety of companies and products on the site, so there's something for everyone and every type of podcast. Best of all, you choose which sponsors you want to work with. Podcorn lets podcasts of all sizes browse and choose opportunities right on the platform, set their own rates, and collaborate with brands directly. Podcorn's marketplace mission is to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and full control of how and when we monetize. And if you're a podcaster, and I know many of you are, you know how important that is. Click the link in the show notes or visit podcorn.com, that's P-O-D-C-O-R-N.com, to sign up and start browsing sponsorship opportunities today. And now, let's get on with the show. On March 21, 1645, Rebecca West confessed in court that she and five other women gathered together to pray, quote, unto their familiars. A few weeks later, she further confessed that, quote, half a year after the meeting, the devil appeared to her and married her, and that at that time, she renounced God and Christ Jesus. Over the next two years, Rebecca, the women that she said gathered with her, and over 200 of their neighbors in the counties and shires of East Anglia would be tried for witchcraft. All resulting from the efforts of the man who called himself the Witchfinder General, Matthew Hopkins. During his short-lived career between 1644 and his retirement in 1647, Hopkins and his partner John Stern oversaw over a hundred executions of accused witches, accounting for some 20% of total executions for witchcraft in England between the 15th and the 18th centuries. Born around 1620, Hopkins grew up in Suffolk, the son of a Puritan clergyman. In his early 20s, he became the assistant of a local prosecutor, John Stern and the two began to ride around East Anglia, claiming Parliament had commissioned them to hunt down witches. It hadn't, but that didn't stop Hopkins from giving himself the title of Witchfinder General. Together, these two men would oversee some 250 persons tried for witchcraft in just two years. Among these trials, the most controversial were those held at Bury St. Edmunds in 1645. In July of that year, Stern and Hopkins jailed over a hundred accused witches in the city of Chelmsford in Essex, resulting in the deaths of four of the accused in prison while still awaiting trial. The first to be prosecuted by Matthew Hopkins in these trials was a woman named Elizabeth Clark. Elizabeth Clark, an 80-year-old single woman with only one leg, lived alone in a village in Essex, visited on occasion by a handful of women with whom she would gather and pray. 
When the wife of a local tailor named John Rivet began to suffer fits, Rivet accused Elizabeth of cursing his wife. A lynch mob brought her to the local landholder, who summoned Hopkins and Stern to try her for witchcraft. Since torture was forbidden by law, Hopkins, Stern, and a handful of assistants observed her in captivity over the next few nights, refusing to let her sleep and forcing her to stand and walk for hours on end. After depriving her of sleep for several days and nights, Hopkins testified that on the fourth night, he saw Elizabeth summoning familiars in animal form. According to Hopkins' testimony, among these familiars were Holt, who came in like a white kitling, Jarmara, who came in like a fat spaniel without any legs at all, Vinegar Tom, who was like a long-legged greyhound with a head like an ox with a long tail and broad eyes, who, when this discoverer spoke to and bade him go to the place provided for him and his angels, immediately transformed himself into the shape of a child of four years old, without a head, and gave half a dozen turns about the house and vanished at the door. Sack and sugar, like a black rabbit. News, like a polecat. All these vanished away in a little time. Delirious and exhausted, Elizabeth Clark confessed that she had been induced into witchcraft by her neighbor and friend, Anne West. She also named Anne's daughter, Rebecca West, Anne Leach, her daughter, Helen Clark, Elizabeth Gooding, and several women from other villages. At the Chelmsford Assizes on July 17, 1645, 35 women in all were accused of witchcraft and imprisoned. The Bury St. Edmunds trials saw 18 executions in a single day, two men and 16 women. The judge overseeing these trials was a man with the imposing name of John Godbolt, a local member of parliament who conducted the assizes as a special court. Between the executions of the first 18 accused witches and the subsequent hangings of some 50 others, the sessions had to be adjourned briefly to protect Godbolt from the approach of royalist forces. You see, these trials weren't being held under the ordinary auspices of English common law. Between 1642 and 1651, England was at war with itself. Tired of fighting with Parliament over taxation, King Charles I of England dissolved Parliament in 1629 and spent the next decade trying his hand at personal rule. However, wars in Scotland meant he had to find a way to raise funds. Under English law, that meant convening Parliament. On February 20, 1640, Charles summoned Parliament, whose members convened on April 13th. Charles had called Parliament to raise taxes for his Scottish wars, but the members of Parliament were more interested in undoing what they termed the 11-year tyranny. Charles dissolved Parliament once again after just three weeks, giving it the name of the Short Parliament. The Scottish Wars, however, raged on, and with no other choice, Charles had to call Parliament to convene once again. This long Parliament would sit in some form from November 3rd, 1640, until its dissolution in March of 1660. When Parliament continued to push back against the King, 
Charles stormed Parliament itself, attempting, though ultimately failing, to capture five members of the House of Commons. War broke out less than 40 years after the death of Queen Elizabeth I. King Charles I's royalist supporters, the Cavaliers, fought the pro-Parliament roundheads for the right to control England's government. On June 14, 1645, just a few weeks before the Bury St. Edmunds witch trials would be held, King Charles' Cavaliers were crushed at the Battle of Naseby by the Roundheads, led by Oliver Cromwell. In 1646, Charles was handed over to Cromwell and the English Parliament. After Charles conspired with some of his supporters to regain power, Cromwell wanted to try him for treason. When moderates in Parliament refused, he purged them from the government, creating the Rump Parliament in 1648. This new parliament, dominated by Puritans and Roundheads, agreed to put Charles on trial. The High Court found him guilty as a tyrant, traitor, murderer, and public enemy. Convicted of treason, King Charles I was beheaded at Whitehall Palace on January 30, 1649. By the end of the war, an estimated 4% of the English population had been killed, nearly twice the total English casualties of World War I. The chaos of the English Civil War meant the usual mechanisms of governing had ceased to function. The remarkable religious zeal, especially among Puritan parliamentary forces, coupled with a lack of central government control to check the judiciary. Witches were no longer tried by traditional justices of assize who represented the crown, but by local justices of the peace, like John Godbolt, who in the midst of the political chaos experienced unprecedented freedom and lack of oversight. Add to this the apocalyptic rhetoric advocating the cleansing of the earth before the second coming of Christ, and you have a recipe for disaster. But at least one historian has theorized that the Bury St. Edmunds witch trials may have had personal causes as well as political. One of the accusers in the Bury St. Edmunds trials was Susan Edwards, whose infant son John had recently died. Susan believed he had been bewitched and blamed the group of women surrounding Elizabeth Clark in Misley Parish. This group unquestionably consisted of women who existed on the margins of society. Elizabeth Clark was an elderly, crippled single woman. Anne West and Anne Leach were both widows, whose daughters, Rebecca West and Helen Clark, were considered guilty by association. The only woman who happened to be married and not descended from an accused witch was Elizabeth Gooding. However, she did have a reputation for, quote, being lewd, a puritanical euphemism for sexual promiscuity. Their collective crime appears to have been consorting with one another without a clear male authority to oversee them. Susan Edwards, by contrast, was the wife of one of the most prestigious members of Misley Parish. More than that, she had the ear and the sympathy of Matthew Hopkins. Hopkins had much in common with Susan. They were both the children of pastors, and both had lost a parent. 
Susan's mother, a woman named Free Gift Witham, died in 1633, and Hopkins' father, James, in 1634. A short time later, Hopkins' widowed mother married Thomas Witham, Susan's father. By 1645, Matthew Hopkins and Susan Edwards had been step-siblings for a decade. Since both were the children of Cambridge-educated pastors, both grew up well-versed in the dangers of witchcraft. A short time after the tailor John Rivet accused Elizabeth Clark of bewitching his wife, Susan accused Clark and her associates of using witchcraft to cause the death of her son. Nearly all of Susan's children had been ill-fated. Of Susan's four children, perhaps one survived, a daughter named Freegift after Susan's mother. The rest all died before their first birthdays. By the time her son John had died, she had given birth four times in just five years and buried three of her children. Distraught and exhausted, she went looking for someone to blame. She found a group of women that Puritan society already frowned upon, and Matthew Hopkins, eager to prove himself, could hardly be expected to resist his own stepsister's pleas for justice. The results were predictably disastrous, leading to the arrest of hundreds of accused witches in East Anglia. In addition to the 18 convicted witches hanged in a single day of the Bury St. Edmund's witch trials, Following the resumption of the trials after the threat from royalist forces had passed, some 50 more were hanged as witches. Unsurprisingly, not everyone celebrated Hopkins' actions. One report on the Bury St. Edmund's trials accused Hopkins and Stern of eliciting confessions illegally through torture, and came close to accusing them of witchcraft themselves, asserting that it was, quote, as if some busy men had made use of some ill arts to extort such confession. A parliamentary newspaper, the Moderate Intelligencer, expressed unease at the trials, and major opposition came from John Gall, a vicar from Huntingdonshire, who wrote and published a critique of the trials entitled Select Cases of Conscience Touching Witches and Witchcrafts in 1646, and subsequently issued a series of sermons against the practice of witch hunting. In 1647, the Court of Assize summoned Hopkins and Stern for questioning, asking if Hopkins' own methods might not constitute witchcraft. Hopkins gained some much-needed time with the hearing interrupted by the expiration of the regular session, and by the time the court resumed, Hopkins had decided to retire. Even in retirement, he felt the need to answer his critics, and did so by publishing a treatise entitled The Discovery of Witches in 1647. The discovery itself is written as though Hopkins were being interrogated in a courtroom, with a series of queries and answers, and Hopkins writing about himself in the third person as though he were a court recorder. His first point of defense answers the question of whether he himself might be guilty of witchcraft. Query 1. 
that he must needs be the greatest witch, sorcerer, and wizard himself, else he could not do it. Answer, if Satan's kingdom be divided against itself, how shall it stand? Another query explains the source of his skill at discovering witches. Query 3. From whence then proceeded this, his skill? Was it from his profound learning, or from much reading of learned authors concerning that subject? Answer. From neither of both, but from experience, which, though it be meanly esteemed of, yet the surest and safest way to judge by. And by the end of the discovery, Hopkins' annoyance with his critics, especially those who accuse him of being a charlatan, begins to show. Query 14. All that the witch-finder doth is to fleece the country of their money, and therefore rides and goes to towns to have employment, and promiseth them fair promises, and it may be doth nothing for it, and possesseth many men, that they have so many wizards and so many witches in their town, and so heartens them on to entertain him. Answer. You do him a great deal of wrong in every of these particulars. For, first, one, he never went to any town or place, but they rode, writ, or sent often for him, and were, for aught he knew, glad of him. Two, he is a man that doth disclaim that ever he detected a witch, or said, Thou art a witch, only after her trial by search, and their own confessions, he, as others may judge. Three, lastly, judge how he fleeceth the country and enriches himself by considering the vast sum he takes of every town. He demands but twenty shillings a town, and doth sometimes ride twenty miles for that, and hath no more for all his charges thither and back again, and it may be he stays a week there, and find there three or four witches, or if it be but one, cheap enough, and this is the great sum he takes to maintain his company with three horses. Given the many critics and doubters surrounding Hopkins, why was he given such free reign as Witchfinder? The answer probably lies in the ways that scapegoating in general and witchcraft accusations in particular can ease the negative emotions building in any tight-knit community. The accusation of witches can help alleviate fears of future harm, as in the case of John Rivet and his afflicted wife, or, as in the case of Susan Edwards and her children, it can alleviate any sense of guilt, anxiety, or responsibility in the face of overwhelming loss. As women living and meeting outside of male control and on the margins of society, Clark, West, and the others made easy scapegoats. Their gatherings, which their neighbors swore were witches' sabbaths, were most likely prayer meetings, though held outside of the supervision of a pastor by women who were semi-literate at best. Society's discomfort with these women is apparent in some of the testimony against Rebecca West, about whom it was said that the devil approached her, quote, as a proper young man who desired of her that he might have the same familiarity with her that others that appeared to her before had had. 
Hopkins died just a few months after retiring and writing The Discovery of Witches, probably of tuberculosis. It's impossible to know whether he eventually would have grown to regret his role in the witch trials of 1645, or, if given parliamentary permission, he might have gone on to do even more harm. Thanks to his infamous reputation and the publication of a woodcut illustration in The Discovery, depicting him, the women he accused, and their alleged familiars, the image of Matthew Hopkins as the Witchfinder General remains an icon of the early modern witch craze. And while Hopkins himself died young, his witch-finding techniques would live on, exported to the American colonies to resurface half a century later, in the city of Salem. Perhaps in anticipation of such a legacy, Hopkins ends the discovery of witches with a Latin challenge. Judicet ulus. Let anyone judge. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can subscribe to Enchanted wherever you listen. Rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts helps us move up in the ranks and helps new listeners find us more easily on a variety of podcast apps. So if you want to help spread the word, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. This week's episode was produced by me with original music by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. Special thanks this week to Lenny Scovel for his voice talent as Matthew Hopkins. You can get in touch with us via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Enchanted Podcast and on Twitter at Enchanted Pod. Huge thanks to Podcorn for sponsoring this episode. You can help sponsor the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash enchantedpodcast. A big welcome to our newest Patreon patron, Heather. Thank you so much for helping us to bring you new and better episodes of Enchanted. To learn more about the show or to become a supporter yourself and help keep the magic going, please visit EnchantedPodcast.net. I'm Corinne Weben. Thank you for listening and stay enchanted.